Now, the importance of the event that took place this day in history on Monday, the 10th of Nisan, by the first month of the Jewish calendar, would have been A.D. 30, in the city of Jerusalem. The importance of this event is confirmed by its record in all four of the Gospels, which is very rare. The many aspects of what occurs and how this day unfolds declare and repeat over and over again that he who who enters is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised King who has come from the line of David. We will look at these evidences carefully and be left with no other conclusion. Jesus Christ's entry into Jerusalem, often called Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry, is one of the most amazing declarations of God the Father about His Son, Jesus Christ, in all of Scripture. But, it is also a strange and foreboding day. For it will end with Jesus alone. Alone in the temple. An an edifice constructed for the worship of Him, God. The approaching Friday is Passover. We also know that it is the day of death for the one being hailed as Savior who comes in the name of the Lord. This king enters Jerusalem, the city of God, as God the Son. Simultaneously, he enters his final five days of human life. In full knowledge, they will end with his execution on a wooden cross just outside these city gates. Let us pray and ask God for his understanding. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we, as, as Paul said, I am carnal, born under sin. Father, we are are mortal, and your word is spiritual. We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Teach us, Lord. Open our feeble minds and hearts to grasp the impossible, to grasp the greatness of God. Lord, please use my my fumbling, stumbling tongue to, to speak the impossible, to speak truth about the word of God. Lead us, Father, by your Holy Spirit and bring us nearer to you that we would see you more deeply. We, our lives would be changed and we would be conformed to the image because we have seen and been with Christ this morning. In your name, amen. <clears throat> now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, and we begin with the Messiah's preparation for entry. This is a map of Judea. It is taken or put together to show what it was like at the time of Christ. To the north of the actual map up above there is the Sea of Galilee. That is where the majority of Jesus' ministry has taken place. And as we have been following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, He has recently come down from the north Along the western side of the river Jordan, he crosses over into what is known as the region of Perea, comes down through there, crosses back over again going west over the Jordan, and then came into the city of Jericho. What can you remember about the city of Jericho? This is more of a test of me than it is of you. But what do you remember? We talked about Jericho last week. Tell me something you remember about Jericho. Right. There were two Jerichos. Right. There was the rubble left over 
from the remains of when Joshua and his men had defeated that city. Yes, that's right. There was a blind man sitting along the road right there near Jericho. Jericho was a beautiful city. This rebuilt Jericho was built by Herod as kind of a, a, a special palace. And it was quite the city for people to come to. It was called the Oasis City at times. An oasis in the desert. Jesus and his disciples, they leave Jericho. And they're hiking up a steep 3,500 feet on about 15 miles of desolate and rocky road. This photo that you see here is taken from the south of Jericho, looking back as if you were with Christ, leaving that oasis city and heading south toward Jerusalem. This is the lush and comfortable scenery you would enjoy along the way. But as you can see here, it is a very arduous journey. It was not only barren and physically demanding, but provided numerous hideouts where robbers would wait to ambush unsuspecting travelers. It was very hard and it was very dangerous. Now Jesus, the disciples, and the multitude following him have arrived at the village of Bethphage. And you will see it right there in the middle. It is translated as the house of unripe figs which is nearby to the town of Bethany. And you see it down and would be on your right hand side. That translates as a house of sorrow. Each night after Jesus' brief stay in the city of Jerusalem, he will walk two miles from there to Bethany. He will spend each night likely lodging with his close friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and then returning to the city with his disciples the next morning. Now Bethphage in the middle was likely a very small village, but it is located at the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives. It would have placed it 300 feet above the city of Jerusalem. Wrote one source, this high hill commands a spectacular view of Jerusalem, and especially of the temple. This morning's episode is from a location near Bethphage and Bethany. Jesus sends two of his disciples... And he said to them in verse 1, Go into the village opposite you. And it was probably Bethphage, but it's not stated clearly. And as soon as you have entered that village, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And I don't want to avoid sometimes where we have difficulties or complications. If you go to Matthew, you will read it a bit differently. Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Matthew, as we've, we've seen at different times, what was Matthew prior to taking up the role as a disciple of Christ? What was his job? Tax collector, yeah. He had an affinity, I think, an attention to numbers. He watched those details. He brought those out in his gospel. <clears throat> he mentions two demon-possessed men in Gerasi. He mentions two blind men along the road to Jericho that we looked at last week. And this morning he mentions the donkey and her colt. Whereas Matthew, excuse me, Mark, Luke, and John, when they began to tell these stories, they simply emphasized the more significant or the active person in that particular event. Verse 3 goes on to say, And if anyone says to you, to these two disciples, what are you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. 
and immediately he will send it here. Now we begin with the colt. Why not a horse? Why not an ox? Why didn't they simply walk into the city as they have been doing for the last 15 miles? That this is a donkey and that this is a colt is extremely important. The first mention in prophecy of the donkey colt comes from the first book of the Old Testament. Clear back in Genesis. Genesis 49 verses 10 through 11. And it reads, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now honestly, you read that, but without Jesus who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Without Jesus ordering a colt of a donkey as his ride, the prophecy from Genesis would appear pretty vague. But Matthew's gospel quotes another Old Testament prophecy that makes it absolutely clear. Matthew chapter 21 verses 4 and 5 read, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, Your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that is taken from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey enters the great king. And not only does Jesus require a donkey colt, but there's another quality of this colt. It is one on which no one has sat. Now the fact that no one has ever sat on this colt is also very meaningful. Wrote one commentator, in the ancient world, including Israel, one of the prerogatives of the king was to commandeer a beast of burden whenever he needed it. As the king... Jesus exercised that right and commanded his disciples to get a colt. But something else is significant. The colt had never been ridden. Donkeys, just like horses, usually had to be broken in to become functional beasts of burden. Yet the principle in the Jewish culture was that no one was allowed to ride on the king's horse or the king's donkey. Only the king could ride his beasts. That is why Jesus specifically asked for a colt that had never been written. It was the colt prepared for the king. End quote. Now, as you look at this part of the story early, was this Jesus' omniscience or simply good planning? Whether this is also a demonstration of Jesus' God attribute of knowing all things, I'm not absolutely sure. Several writers actually attribute this to one knowledge of the donkey's presence, where it would be, and then the permission given as evidence that Jesus was well known in the area and supported by many people. However, first of all, it is not recorded that Jesus had ever been in Bethphage. Secondly, the timing and the location and the requirements of the animal were extremely unique. Thirdly, the anticipation of the exact question and response of those near the colt, 
perhaps one being the owner, seems like more than just good relationships in the community and effective advanced planning by Jesus. However, whichever way it is understood, grasp this. Jesus is commanding and directing the fulfillment of ancient prophecy with complete precision and control. This does not just happen. This does not just unroll itself. This is something controlled and completely in the hand of the Messiah. With unusual care for the disciples, the instructions were also followed by them. First of all, in action. We read in verse 4, So they went their way and they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street. And they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? They did precisely what Jesus had commanded them to do. And if you've been paying attention as we've gone through Mark, that is rare. But they obeyed completely. And then they obeyed in word. And they spoke to them, to these bystanders, just as Jesus had commanded them. So they let them go again. They said exactly what Jesus had instructed them to say. And the people standing there submitted as well. And verse 7 says, Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. Then he sat on it. And many, and here Matthew records a very great multitude. Some estimate it may have been as many as tens of thousands. They spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, why in the world would you spread your jackets, your cloaks, your robes out in the street for this man and his donkey to walk on? What does this accomplish? Spreading one's garments on the street was an ancient act of homage reserved for high royalty, suggesting that they recognize his claim to be king of the Jews, as one commentator explains. They recognized him to be king of the Jews. Now, where does that come from? Why would they do this? Was it a practice before? If you go to 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu is an example at the time he was anointed king of Israel by the servant of Elisha. 2 Kings 9, we see the Lord, Yahweh, has chosen Jehu to be king. His purpose is to avenge the blood of God's prophets that were slain at the hands of King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. At God's transfer of power, it is announced with this response. Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And then we read, Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under the king on the top of the steps. Then they blew the trumpets saying, Jehu is king. And so that's the first instance we see of this practice. And then it went on and it was practiced often throughout Judaism. That it would be used to inaugurate the king. But what about cutting off these leafy branches in the trees? Well, I think this is a preview of the glorious eternal praise of the Lamb. And we see it in the heavens. In Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After these things wrote John, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. There was a form of praise. It was a form of adoration. You see it on some of the minted coins, the palm branches uh, in Jewish coins. 
The palm branch was significant as part of adoration to one who would be inaugurated as king. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, and the word saying in, in many of your translations says shouting. It's a word we've seen a few times in Mark already. It can mean to scream at the top of your voice. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Here we have the prophecies fulfilled in praise. Hosanna means save now. They're calling out to the one they see as Messiah. Save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that comes from Psalm 118 verse 26. And it is sung as an ascent psalm. It is a going up psalm. The Jews when they would come to Jerusalem. As they would trudge up that steep incline to the city. for, For many many miles. They would sing these psalms of ascent. They would sing them then as they would come up the steps up to the temple to give their sacrifice, to offer worship to God. They have these psalms and they would sing them gladly. But in Psalm 118, it reads, He who comes in the name of the Lord. When it was first written, that psalm spoke about those who came to the city, to the temple to worship and the blessing that they would receive. But in this unique moment, it is sung in the presence of Of the one believed to be the long awaited Messiah. They are singing it to him. It was he, Jesus, who was the blessed one who was coming in the name of the Lord. Blessed, it goes on to say, is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a deep connection with David. It is based on the covenant that Yahweh, our Lord, made with David through the prophet Nathan. And it's found in 2 Samuel 7. We sometimes hear about David so frequently uh, as, as that one of whom they hoped for. That one corrected or connected directly with the Messiah. And, and honestly, it's difficult for us to make that connection unless we see what was going on in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 through 16, the prophet Nathan spoke to David and said, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Who will come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. Connect this with Christ. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. And he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity. I will chase him with the rod of men. And with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him. As I took it from Saul. Whom I removed from before you. And your house, catch this last part of this covenant. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And it is speaking there of the greater David. The one who would someday come from the lineage of the original King David. Extending that connection of David. A thousand years prior to Jesus entering the city that day. The same David uses that phrase. In the name of the Lord. Remember? He cries out to Goliath. The giant Philistine. And he says to him. A a ruddy young man. An able young man. Yelling at this giant. Who has terrified the people of Israel. 
the armies of Israel. And he says to him, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 300 years later, 700 years before this day in history, the prophet Isaiah linked David in Isaiah 9, verse 6. A familiar Christmas uh, reference that we use. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And again, two chapters later, Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse? The father of David. And a branch. Branch is common Old Testament symbolism for a Messiah. That branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with, the, with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Again, we're not familiar with those, are we? We rarely read those. But the people of Judaism would have heard this spoken many, many times. They would have realized this is the one. This is the one. Luke 19 verses 37 reveals another reason the multitude was so zealous. We read there, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works they had seen. John's gospel mentions one specific mighty work of Christ. That attracted a large number of those people. What do you think that was? John 12 verse 17. Therefore the people who were with him. When he called Lazarus out of his tomb. And raised him from the dead. Bore witness. For this reason the people also met him. Because they had heard that he had done this sign. You see what is going on here. So much of the delight and exhilaration in the hearts of the people was due to the fact that they saw the life of Jesus had been and even in this very moment was fulfilling the prophecies they had longed for. Not just in their lifetime, but the generation before them and the generation before that. For centuries and centuries they had looked for this one. This man whom they themselves were witnessing. He is riding down the road in front of them. That's my robe his donkey is stepping on. They are seeing him in flesh and blood before their very own eyes. And he is the Messiah. He has come. Victory has come. But not the victory that they were anticipating. He is literally... He is literally everything Isaiah and Jeremiah had promised he would be. Isaiah 29 verse 18. In that day, 
The deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Jeremiah 23 describes him to a T, and in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. And that he is. Therefore behold the days are coming says the Lord. That they shall no longer say. As the Lord lives who brought up the children out of Israel. From the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives. Who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel. From the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them. And they shall dwell in their own land. That day will come. And it will be at the hands of this Messiah. In his second advent. This king has come. He is our righteousness. That is what the gospel is all about. And he is the fulfillment. Verse 11 and then says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The events following Jesus' entry into Jerusalem include the following. A. Jesus takes notice. Malachi told us this would happen. Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek. Will suddenly come into his temple. Whose temple? His temple. He is arriving in his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant. In whom you delight. Behold he is coming. Says the Lord of hosts. David also described the Messiah's personal stake in that temple. Psalm 69. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brethren. And an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The ESV study Bible says, Jesus looked around at everything in the temple area, not as a pilgrim, but as a sovereign Lord who will suddenly come into his temple. Christ acted as one who had the authority to inspect temple conditions. And his observation missed missed nothing, wrote one author. And another commented, Mark has no intention of depicting Jesus as a pilgrim who has come to Jerusalem for the first time and has a natural desire to see all. The point is rather that Jesus is the Lord of the temple who must inspect its premises. And we will see the outcome of that inspection very shortly in the weeks ahead. So Jesus takes notice and Jerusalem is shaken. Matthew writes in in chapter 21 verse 10. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, stirred, shaken, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. The city was shaken. The Greek word used means rocked like an earthquake. But how will it respond four days later? And then we have, Jesus takes notice, Jerusalem is shaken. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees become absolutely desperate. Rebuking their challenger in Luke chapter 19, 
We read, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And then they realized their defeat. John chapter 12 verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves. You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. Every time I read the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And into its temple. And the beginning of his final few days before the cross. I am most amazed by this fact. This was the one, listen carefully, this was the one specific day, Passover day, in all the history of the existence of time and the world on which Jesus was prophesied to enter the city of Jerusalem. He is right on time, as he must be. Daniel 9.24 reads, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That is Jesus. That is what he came to do, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The 70 weeks Daniel prophesies represents 70 weeks of years or a total of 490 years, which is precisely the time from Daniel's prophecy to that specific Passover day on which Jesus entered Jerusalem. In his work on the cross, he would finish the transgression. He would make an end of sins. He would make reconciliation to those who have been separated from their God. And he would bring in everlasting righteousness. We would be justified for eternity through faith in the one that came that morning. And Jesus' entry was also on the 10th day of Nisan. It is the day in which Jewish families traditionally select the lamb to be offered as their, as their Passover. Our lamb, the lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, was chosen and brought into the city in preparation of the sacrifice for the greatest of all Passover offerings. That would take place. Four days later. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start with verse 11. You will see the futility of what the Jews have faced in verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily. And offering repeatedly. The same sacrifices. Which can never take away sins. In another portion of Hebrews it says. These sacrifices remind us of the sins. They cannot take them away. And yet they were offered repeatedly, continually. But this man, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's us who believe. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant. 
that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Jesus arrives that morning and he has the most amazing work to accomplish. But it will be accomplished. He comes in as a king. He is essentially forgotten. And then he is turned on. Acts 4 verse 26 says, The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever they had chosen, Whatever was on their plan of attack and their murderous scheme, no. To do whatever your hand, O oh God, and your purpose determined before to be done. They would only carry out what God had determined to be done. That is why Jesus arrives in that city. Are you shaken like Jerusalem by the majestic sovereignty of this living God? They were shaken. They were impressed. But it requires more. You can be shaken. You can attend. You can be here in and out all the time. But it must be that you put your faith in this one who entered Jerusalem. In this Messiah who came to accomplish the salvation of our souls. Don't just be caught up in being in church or being around believers. Live for him. Know Him. Pursue Him with all your heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord God, You are so wise and so mighty that that You would create such a, a scene as this one with such irony, such sobriety, such victory, such power. Lord, as you exercise this, this one whom you had brought, your very own son, as he set his face towards Jerusalem and was there right on time to perform what you had settled before the foundation of the world. And Father, I pray, I, I, I ask you, Lord, please impress upon my heart and the hearts of, of every man and woman young and old, that that coming into Jerusalem was to rescue me. That your work and your intention, the suffering you will undergo in the days ahead, your placement on that cross and the sin that you took upon your life was my sin. And that this was all part of your plan, all of your love, your justice, and your righteousness. Oh God, bring this to us. Don't let us just look at these as historically amazing events. Let us see the depth, the personal depth of your love for your people that you poured out at this time. Thank you for your word. There is nothing like it. Teach us, draw us near, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Use us this week. Lord, use us to spread this news to the people who are dying and going to hell that they would hear the gospel, the good news, 
and know Christ. Lord, please use this to, to encourage us that we, that we would seek after you with joy, with obedient love, and glorify your name wherever we go. For you are worthy for eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.